0: I'm here and I'm joined by the wonderful Stephen Cohen from BlackRock. Stephen, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We're at WealthTech18 today, an event that you guys put on. Can you tell me uh, why did you put on an event about wealth and tech?
1: So I think that wealth and technology and finance are all going to come together. So, you know, think about what's going on in the rest of our lives, right? Um, Technology is not something that sits on the side. It's just interwoven to everything. Then you think about finance. And you think about the way we manage money and it's still, I think, on the side. And that journey to weave it into the kind of daily life, as it were, of the way we think about you know, managing our finances, the way we think about you know, investing. What is the point of investing? Um, that, I think, is all going to come together. It's coming
0: together and you've had
1: some interesting
0: speakers today. Can you give me a flavor for the types of speakers and the, the types of things and then a little bit about the audience as well?
1: Yeah, so it's a really mixed audience, actually. And what's interesting about the speakers as well is, um, and we try and do this on purpose, is is actually to have people come in from other industries, Mm -hmm. have people come in from other walks of life to talk about what is going on in technology outside of the wealth space or outside of the finance space. Because I think there's so much we can learn as we think about trying to help Investors use technology for investing. There's so much we can learn that's gone on in other industries and that to me is really, there's a diversity element that's really important. To me. Yeah, learning
0: from other industries and, and where do we think are going to be the opportunities? We've, we've got a panel coming up later talking about AI and VR and blockchain. There's a lot of hype out there but do you think that this is something that's really coming real? Is it just going to be robo forever or are we going deeper into the value chain
1: now? I think we we'll go deeper. I mean, you know, BlackRock, we've, you know, we've always had, we have something called Aladdin which is our kind of risk technology system which has always been very very successful it's very very much at the heart of the firm in my business in the ETF business technology has always played a very important role but we're looking at how do you use technology in terms of AI through things like investing processes how do you use AI in terms of how you actually engage with your clients and your partners and what, what does that what can that tell you the potential for something like blockchain to actually even just change the underlying plumbing Mm. of the way the system works. And that's before you get into things like robo-advice and actually how do you use more digital to help people get the right information at the right time. And getting the right information at the right time, what would that mean? So today, for example, I'm getting paper
0: once every quarter, once every year. Is that experience going to be different? And can you give me a flavour for some of the things you've seen?
1: I think it will be very different to the extent that what... um, So, what I think technology does for most things is it makes you more efficient, right? So, you know, just think about GPS, you know, uh, the ability to use a map system or whatever, Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever it is to kind of get where you want to go, Ways, you know, the ability to start to kind of bring in kind of crowd information, traffic information. So, it brings new sources of information together. So, if you think about what you just said, like I get my state statement once a quarter and whatever's on that printed statement that's the only information I can get and the inability to then go from there to somewhere else to understand deeper what does it mean and is it the right thing for me I think what technology does or you know what the digital experience does is it just makes it so much more immersed and The real trick, I think, over the long term and the future is actually that people start to think about the way they are managing their money and the way they're investing. It's a part of daily life. It's not something that, again, sits on the side. So we're talking a lot about well-being. And you think about kind of physical well-being and then mental well-being and now financial well-being. And actually this idea that, you know, you want to get this right. Technology will allow you to do that, um, probably in ways we haven't even thought of yet.
0: Absolutely. The Money and Mental Health Policy Institute have done a lot of work looking at how um, financial health and mental health really overlap. And uh, I look forward to seeing a lot more from today's event. Stephen Cohen, thank you very much for being on FinTech Insider. Thanks very so much. Thank you. Welcome to FinTech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS. We're recording live at BlackRock's Wealth Tech Summit at Codenode in London. Today we're going to talk about AR, VR, AI, and blockchain. Are these buzzwords or actual game changers? I'm Simon Taylor, and right now I'm surrounded by a wealth of knowledge (laughs) um, and experience. Today I have the one and only Rebecca Skiles, have I said that right? You have, that's right. Uh, From Accenture Digital. Rebecca, good to have you with us. Glad to be here. Uh, We have Olivia Vinden, who's Tech Blockchain Specialist uh, for Asset and Wealth Management at Alpha.
2: Hi, welcome.
0: All the specialisms. And Nick Burns, who is the chairman of EngageWorks. Hello there. Nick, good to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Um, Rebecca, can I start with you? Do you want to just give a, a brief intro to who you are and what you do?
3: Sure. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Becky Skiles, really. Rebecca, only if you're mad at me. Oh, sorry, um, I'm not That at you. is fine. Glad to know. Um, I am a managing director in Accenture's digital practice. I look after our financial services business. Um, I spent the first... 10 years of my career working for technology startups, both B2B and B2C, before joining Accenture 12 years ago. Now you can do the math and forget how old I am. Please don't do that. Um, and I'm, I'm here very excited today to talk about AR, VR, AI, all the acronyms, and, and how we see them really transforming um, the whole financial services sector. And um, no, we're not using spreadsheets anymore.
0: No, it's, it's time, to get, time to say no to the spreadsheets. Just say no. I feel no. like blockchain needs the two-letter acronym, and then we've got the set, right? <laughs> Maybe I'm just being completionist here. Um, Olivia, how about yourself?
2: Sure. So my name is Olivia Vinden. I work for Alpha FMC, which is a buy-side specialty consulting firm. We work with asset and wealth managers exclusively. Um, we work with about 85 of the top 100 asset managers by AUM globally and I lead our fintech and innovation practice. Thank you, Olivia. And Nick. Uh,
4: yeah, Nick Burns, uh, I'm, uh, I was about 25 years in the financial services industry, uh, mainly employee benefits, or so spent, spent a bit of time being a wealth manager as well. Um, uh, and uh, in the last couple of years, I, I do some consulting for some businesses in financial services, but actually um, most of my energies are in the world of creative technology now and uh, behavioural change.
0: Behavioural change. Let's see if we can make some behavioural change. Um, All right, so the (laughs) aim of today's panel, like I said, is to get beyond the buzzwords. We're looking for those practical examples. Not everybody needs a blockchain, not everybody needs AR and VR, but let's just start with what is AR and VR, um, and let's make some sense of it. So, um, Becky, do you want to lead us out with that one?
3: Oh, yeah, the tough exam question right at the top. So we, we look at three different kinds of new reality. We look at extended reality. So if you're driving a car and you now have your navigation system projecting on your screen instead of having to look down, and we call it extended reality. We look at augmented reality, which is what most of us see with things like the hollow lens, where there's some form of information, data, combined with visualization that's projected on the real world as opposed to virtual reality, which is a totally immersive experience that makes some of us motion sick, um, Mm -hmm. where you're immersed in a totally different virtual world.
0: Thank you, Becky. Um, Nick, do you want to just add on to that point? (coughs) Can you give um, some more examples, maybe?
4: Yeah, so um, uh, I I was actually doing a bit of consulting work for uh, a leading bank, uh, and one of their um, uh, subsidiaries um, or or franchises, Scottish Widows, um, they were struggling with the whole concept of how to engage with customers and of course their distribution model has changed and um, uh, they're starting to find that a lot of the partners that they would historically have distributed through were starting to eat their lunch Uh, and so uh, they thought it might not be a bad idea to see if they could get deeper engagement with their customers and of course most financial services businesses would tend to to engage with customers through something that will turn up in the post. Uh, maybe 10 pages long, and expect you to be really excited about mm-hmm. your pension statement, um, and um, started to figure out that perhaps that's not... There might be a different way of doing it. So, uh, uh, one of the businesses I'm involved with, Engage, we went to an employer, uh, and uh, we, two employers, actually, um, and we took a complete cross-section of their employees from people who had opted out of their pension, right through to people who are nearing retirement and everybody in between um, different demographics, uh, gender, etc. And we took them through, the, the, the gig was, you've got three minutes to try and immerse somebody in an experience that will make them take some form of action at the end of three minutes where it's taken Scottish widows 200 years to try and do it. So that was kind of the brief. Um, So I gave it to the creative guys and girls and uh, the software developers. They couldn't spell pensions, uh, which was a good start. Um, And um, having done that, they went off. We were quite predominantly female as well, interestingly, in the the creative build. Um, And they came back with something that was quite interesting that had a combination of not just behavioral science behind it, but taking people through an experience that was everything about what they loved. And that was a really important point. You would ask an employee, what do you love to do? Is it travel? Is it food? Is it drink? We didn't talk about pensions. And as we took them on a journey of love, their love, um, uh, we then started to take them to a world of projecting what their future might look like and whether the love that they had today would be the love that they may have uh, in maybe 20 years' time. And that's when we took them into a VR experience. And in three minutes... Uh, the engagement was quite interesting, the outcome was quite interesting.
0: So uh, I want to fall in love with AR and VR exactly <laughs> the same. I, I think that sounds like a, like a beautiful yes. afternoon. Um, but Olivia, let's ground this, because the, um, that experience sounds reasonably tangible, but it's also a long way away from the post, um, as was said a second ago, so can you get from one to the other? Can you? Uh, is this just a really nice thing in a lab somewhere, or is, is that actually realistic?
2: specifically with ARVR. Yeah. Or yeah. just more generally. Yeah, I think it is really realistic. You know, um, the what we want to see over the coming years is that the cost of these things coming down, but there are already practical experiences of them of them being used. You know, we were just talking earlier that in asset management on the real estate side, people have been talking about visiting and buildings and being able to see investment plans for those buildings or environmental plans for those buildings using um, AR and VR so I think right now it's, it's, it's quite expensive for people to implement but it will come cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So we've got
0: a bit of Moore's Law helping us out there so it wasn't that crazy 10 years ago when you started to see um, people do 3D models of real estate. And now this is just taking that a, a logical step forward. So, Becky, are there these logical steps that people can take? And if they wanted to go down that journey, how do they start? Because, again, I'm really thinking about uh, this sounds great, but my day job's over here and this is over here somewhere. What are those <laughs> steps?
3: Well, I think, I think one of the things that we always look at is what's the business reason for it? What is the customer what does the customer need that this is filling? Because one thing that doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what kind of technology you're talking about, at the end of it, there's a customer who has a need and and you need this to be able to fill a a gaping need. And I think um, what Nick and I were talking about just beforehand was actually when it comes to behavioral finance and the idea of spend today versus save for not just tomorrow but far off tomorrow what we know is the psychology of human beings is that it, it's very hard for people to imagine themselves beyond kind of their next birthday. There's a fascinating study done at Stanford which said if you ask a person to imagine the, the birthday ahead of them, they, they will think of themselves in a room blowing out the cake. But if you ask them to imagine their birthday kind of 30 years or 50 years from now, they will, they will imagine it in 3D as if, as if they were watching it, almost like the person you are 30 years from now is a stranger. And... The, the implications for investing in that context are, are clear, which is if you don't feel the connection to that future self, then you're, go- you're not going to make a decision that's going to help that future self. You're going to make a decision that helps your, your current self. You're going to spend the money on the shoes or the, the dinner or, or the vacation. And what they've seen with um, virtual reality is if you create an avatar, so if, if you create a Becky that's you know, 65 and you put me in a virtual reality environment and you put me in front of a mirror and I see 65-year-old me, and you ask me similar questions about my investment, I'm much more likely to pick the long-term savings option. So I'm much more likely to want to save to help myself when I can envision what that actually looks like, what I actually look like as a human being. And so I think that's the customer need that we're seeing. You know, We've got a huge pension gap in the UK. Um, we have huge portions of the populations who have zero savings. We have a ton of people in the UK saving in cash. British people love to keep their assets in cash. So I think, I think making that future self-reality and whether it's, you know what Nick was saying about this is, this is the thing you can have when you're 60 if you save now um, or just thinking about who you are in the future because we, we don't understand compound interest as human beings. We don't understand what the implication of putting 20 pounds away every week or 100 pounds away every week means to us in terms of like, am I going to be able to afford the five-bedroom villa in Marbella or the the one-bedroom flat uh, in in South London. It's
0: making it real for people, and the magic of compounding is something that isn't very well known, weirdly, and maybe it's it's connected. So one of the things uh, that you often notice is that tech tends to be... the romance around tech is about the tech itself. Look how shiny it is, look how new it is. Whereas actually, one of the competitive advantages of the wealth industry has always been the personal relationship. How do those two blend in this space, to your mind, uh, Nick? Because the you talked about you know, kind of really somebody experiencing that, and I think Becky gave it a good example, but is it just gonna be tech that's doing that? And how's that helping me build a relationship and empathy as a brand with that person rather than with just that experience?
4: So um Uh, just picking up on what Becky was saying there we didn't in this, I mean you can have a go on it by the way, it's in the room out there, well not the podcast people obviously but you guys can Sorry um, people
0: listening on the um, podcast but I'm sure you can uh, find uh, Nick at Engage um, Works and find out more.
4: And uh, we did, we didn't age people in it but what we did do was take them on this journey and we gave them three scenarios which was kind of spam and chips or um, a nice wholesome meal um, through to the one-bedroom flat without the fireworking, and just a nice house, not a mansion, but a nice house. And we did the human, very strong human element to your question, um, of uh, you're sitting on your own, as a bit of a lonely chap um, in 30 years' time, or you're with a load of friends raising a glass, to try and get an emotional view as they were wearing the, the headset as to what they wanted, and where they were then, their body language, how it was fixated on what it is they wanted to do, Mm -hmm. to see if that would create that that human feeling. And um, what we also did, to your human point, was we started to profile them around learning behaviors. Mm -hmm. So would they learn in a certain way based upon their personality driver? So we were asking them questions, same question in four different ways, to humanize the um, way in which I think the the marketplace should try and communicate with its customer base whether you were a thinker, a feeler an entertainer or a controller Mm -hmm. and we asked them, uh, people to try and gauge that so that if this goes on to the next stage you don't all receive the same piece of communication because that's what we're brilliant at doing aren't we in the financial services Mm -hmm. industry let's send everyone the same thing and expect them all to engage whereas if we can chunk people up into the type of learning styles that they have we get that much closer human bond with the brand
0: yeah the uh, communication style has been about de-risking um, the communication so that nobody complains rather than building empathy and, and connection and maybe that starts to change Olivia.
2: I think the, there's an interesting angle which isn't less around sort of your behaviors as a customer but more around how you want the service to be delivered to you and you know for me personally having to see a wealth manager between 9 and, and 6 p.m. weekdays is, is not very practical especially if you're a consultant and you're traveling all the time so being able to see your wealth manager out of hours using ar using vr to bring it to get that personal touch but delivered in a slightly different way i think could be really exciting too.
0: could be exciting indeed all right so we've done ar vr a little bit um, let's go to the big one, the the, the buzzword of all buzzwords, artificial <laughs> intelligence. Does anybody want to have a go at defining that for me? Maybe Becky, you want to close
3: that? Oh, I did the last definition. Um, so uh, the, the the way we feel like I feel I like we're like 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 school. I,
0: well, you've come with paper.
3: Right? I know yeah. I did. I brought. I'm, I run the digital practice, and I have paper. Um, <laughs> So the, the way we look at it is we look at machine learning is, is, the, is the set of analytics and data skills where the machine itself can learn from data and train itself to do things in a more intelligent way over time. And then we, we think of artificial intelligence as the layer around that that, that makes the experience feel more human. So it, it's, it's an interesting thing because it, we, we produce so much data what was it, 65 terabytes a day or some ridiculous number. I don't even know what a terabyte is. And you now need machines to be able to understand what all that data means and produce insights and, and learn from it. And then you need another machine on top to pretend to be a human again um, to actually make the, the connection feel real. And I find that you know, extremely ironic. But, but also I think back to my passion for the customer needs, what we're hoping that we'll see is instead of having to see your wealth manager between eight and six every day, you know, the application of these things means that we'll be able to democratize some of this service as well. So when done right, then you can provide, you know, a wealth manager like experience or levels of information, knowledge, training, advice to to much more mass market audience On their time schedules
0: Uh, mass market audiences, i think is an interesting jump off point uh because i think that's the the skills of the wealth manager in the wealth (laughs) sector have always been about really understanding some a person at the human level but now we have tools to do that maybe at more scale but uh, olivia take me on the journey again because if i'm dealing in spreadsheets um day to day how do i get from there to ai it feels like a bit of a jump
2: yeah, it's a massive jump, and I think it's something that people don't often well understand, that AI is the whizzy magic dust that you can apply to something, really just is a total no-hoper unless you have your data model in, in, in position. So... AI and big data absolutely go together and you need to have the data in order to run the AI on top of it. So I think that is something probably that people don't understand very well. But one way that that may change, for example, in a wealth context is with the introduction of of open banking and being able to share your data much more widely and to pull in data from more sources, maybe your bank account and your wealth account and your work pension and then you can use that new data set which is proprietary to you and that's the first time we've ever really been able to do that. Yeah
0: we've never had that complete customer view of all of their transactions across all of their bank accounts before. Now we can pull in that so even if we are sort of doing risk models on spreadsheets actually there's all of this new transactional data where am I going to put it all? Um, Becky what do you think that might mean for somebody though? Do you think we might be able to do uh, different things Uh, sort of you talked briefly about the mass market for instance?
3: Well, so I don't mean mass market. That's It's a good shout of sort of democratization. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the interesting thing from from my perspective is that PSD2 opens a whole world of data out to people. And I think what we'll, we're hoping we'll see is an increasing number of um, fintech companies that are going to come in and do interesting, innovative things with that data, which, and I think we know this from fintech you know, through, through the years, will then compel the banks, the bigger banks, to also do m- more and more interesting things to better serve their customers' holistic financial needs as opposed to, um, you know, doing things based on spreadsheets.
0: Nick, how do I start to visualize this if I'm a, if I'm a kind of consumer and or I'm working a bank, right? I've now got all of this data. I used to be able to make charts in the spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we going to start to um, see the development of more and more tools that help this make sense to me and make sense of my financial
4: life? I think we have to be a bit careful here um, because we all know, don't we, that in the financial services uh, industry, one of the biggest disconnects between this industry and our consumers or customers is that trust word, that we're generally not trusted. Um, And um, uh, yet it's an enormous market and people's money is pretty personal to most people, isn't it? Um, uh, So you've got a disconnect between the the, the real personality of money and wealth may be and then this trust problem I'm already hearing people in the industry saying I'm having, um, we're starting to put together some quite interesting marketing stuff around AI Mm -hmm. um, and around algorithms and we're going to take that out to our clients and talk to them about it and I'm thinking that's going to go down well Um, so you know algorithms, can you get it on Spotify or not Um, you know um, uh, AI, artificial, I checked out what artificial actually is and it's bogus counterfeit fake false sham and unreal Um, so let's take that to our client shall we Um, so um, i think we're going to have to start thinking very uh, carefully about the language that we use Mm -hmm. when we're going to go and interact with our clients (laughs) and our customers and maybe turn the fact that artificial intelligence is fundamentally coming from human beings and maybe it should be authentic intelligence that people might be a bit more interested
0: interesting question about what's the competitive advantage of a human in the machine age um uh, olivia i want to i want to kind of get your thoughts around that because we talked on on the podcast before about that that number at which or that that moment at which a human even though the machine says you've done everything right still wants a person to tell them (coughs) no no it's okay you've done it right they want reassurance (coughs) there's empathy there's reassurance there are these sorts of things that we can only really get from a person
2: yeah, and so I think we had, on the last podcast, we had someone from Bruin Dolphin who was talking about that exact point that <coughs> the majority of calls that they get to their helpline are just saying, did I do it right? Yeah. and They just want someone to sort of hold their hand for that, that last metre. Um, but I think maybe that will be a generational shift. People are much more digital natives as they're, they're coming through into being wealth customers and maybe it's just a, a change in generation will have a different Well, so that's
0: what I was going to ask Becky. Does being human mean being face-to-face?
3: So I think it's, a, it's an interesting question and I think we saw this um, famous example where Microsoft invented this chatbot called Tay, where <laughs> Tay, God went, God. Tay went to Twitter and very quickly learned extremely bad habits and started making racist jokes and, you know, threatening to kill all feminists. And, you know, Microsoft had to quickly take it down. I think, I think artificial intelligence is, you know, it's, it's not perfect. It, it learns, it's classic garbage in, garbage out. If you, you feed an artificial intelligence machine a bunch of garbage, um, the same thing's going to come out of it. So... It, it, for me, artificial intelligence is is just a, a layer that makes the ability to convey this data back to people feel more comfortable. I think the interesting thing is how often it's you don't realize that it's happening. So if you're talking to a chat bot, or if you're web chatting with somebody, or even if you're on the the phone to a call center, you know, in, increasingly, I, I find myself asking the question, "Are you a robot?" Because because they have to tell you, <laughs> um, but it's it's getting quite seamless. And and actually, there's to your generational point, I think there is a different kind of trust with a machine versus a human being, because human beings are in, inherently flawed um, and in, inherently prone to their own biases, whereas machines, in theory, are, are mathematical and, and should have a different kind of trust. But I, I, I think that the need for human connection is, you know, I think that's, that's always going to be, I don't think that's a generational shift.
4: Yeah, I, I was just going to, to add to that, I don't know how many of you have seen uh, the new uh, it 's a uh, blade Runner two thousand and forty nine um, but it 's a slightly strange film, but worth a watch when you think about where AI could go with avatars yeah. and, and, and so on um, and uh, with the advice gap that this the market keeps talking about how do you how do you get to so many people with now fewer people helping um, uh, uh, post RDR and so on uh, so i don 't think we 're a long way away from. Um, if you like the machine learning gathering more and more intelligence and data, factual data but cognitive data as well um, and then um, uh, creating uh, whichever sort of person you might want as your advisor actually um, which could interesting. get interesting um, uh, and then have them in your front room uh, and start going through um, a different experience with them, that's very visual but it's, it's drawing in both factual and <coughs> cognitive data I think that's we're probably five within five years. I could see that happening. Fifteen million unadvised or advice gap starts to become a very interesting. market. You start
0: solving real social problems yeah. at that point yeah. if you can if you can do things as well as having a real impact on the bottom and top line, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is important. But I, I think what would veering towards is the virtues of digital. Digital was always seen as this will help me push cost out of my organisation. But actually, digital gives you a lot more than pushing cost out of the organisation. It gives you a new way to engage with customers. Uh, Olivia, how, again, I'm, I'm going to talk. Bit, uh, keep coming back to this point about the journey of, of kind of with uh, AI. Is it really a case that I can push cost out of my organisation with it? Is it going to give drive my top line? What, why do I want to do this?
2: So I think... AI is really an umbrella term. <laughs> it's yeah, quite difficult a to just point. say, like, yes, it does this, but to, to give some examples, we, we've seen clients who are using AI to take in all equity market data and to then try and predict risk outcomes using unsupervised machine learning. We've seen people use supervised machine learning trying to predict fraud or market abuse in trading historic patterns. Um, we've seen people use text-to-speech or speech-to-text for things like interacting with customers via chatbots. So, the... Uh, and then and then probably at the final end it's just, just beginning to be ai more cognitive stuff around robotics and automating screen-to-screen processes. So across all of those things, I think people are doing things and they each have different advantages, but there isn't just sort of one, one AI, I guess. And
0: one of the ones I heard somebody talk about was that uh, they were looking at satellite photography of car parks of certain retailers to predict the equity value of you know, the, the share price of, of that company. And if the car parks were all empty, obviously business was going to be down. And it's interesting that machines are actually better at facial recognition than humans, better at voice recognition than humans. There's some things they do very well, but some things they, they don't do very well, and, and having that emotional connection is important. All right, so last buzzword. Um, I'm going to get us on to the, the one that's possibly at the same time the most over and under hyped technology. You either hate the thing, love the thing, or just wish the thing would go away. But, Olivia, um, what is the thing? What is blockchain?
2: Uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, no good, <laughs> good um, yeah, so. There's a, a journalist called Simon English who writes The Standard in, in London right now who, for two years, has had a long-running competition for anyone that can um, describe blockchain in two sentences that he understands. And to date, it, it goes unclaimed. So I think if you want to understand how blockchain works, maybe come and find me afterwards. I think what I would like to focus on is, is what does it do? Um, And the number one things that it does is that it allows you to send something of value on the internet in a way that we were never able to do before its its invention. So you're probably thinking, well, I send things of value on the internet all the time, but when you send um, a PayPal message saying I'm giving Simon £10. What actually happens is there's a a real world settlement there and his bank's keeping a ledger, my bank's keeping a ledger, we're sending messages, we're doing reconciliations. What blockchain enables is me to send Simon that £10 with none of that real world activity, that it's just totally digital exchange of value. And that for us in financial services is transformative because it means we can all work from the same same copybook effectively, and we don't have to do all of those manual reconciliations along the side.
0: So. Oh, you mean you don't love manual reconciliations, <laughs> Becky? You must love manual reconciliations.
3: You know, back back in my youth, I did a reconciliation project for one of the big banks, and I still sometimes wake up in a cold sweat thinking about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, I, I quite like the definition that the blockchain is a chain of blocks that that works for me as, as well as anything else. So,
2: thank you, Simon. One me.
3: sentence, you, you
2: it. <laughs> see, you I'm, I'm going to apply for that prize. And I'd probably just make another point as well that when when you're talking about digital. So often when people are talking about digital, they're talking about how you interact with your customers yeah. and that's it. It's just like that—that that is the part of the thing that they want to digitize. But you all know as wealth managers, asset managers, that there's a huge amount of activity which sits in investments or in products or in operations, in regs, um, none of which really gets talked about in the digitization agenda. And I think blockchain is one of the infrastructure pieces that as customers it doesn't matter really to you. I don't, I don't really want you to know that much about blockchain or to care that much about it, but just to know that in the background, it will transform the operations and the running costs. It's
0: that middle and back office stuff. And, uh, there's a metaphor uh, I heard somebody once give called digital uniqueness that I found really helpful, which was, um, if I give you this phone, you now have this phone and I no longer have it, um, that's physical uniqueness. In the digital world, if I send you an email, you have an email, I have an email, we both have a copy. If, I was to give, uh, if I was to send you a spreadsheet, I'd have the same problem, but if I change my spreadsheet, you don't change yours. So the way to solve that was simple. We just have Google Docs, and Google Docs keeps it, and we centralize it. But actually, where do I centralize all of world trade? Where do I centralize all um, equities markets? Because China probably aren't going to like it if I centralize it in the USA. So actually, to have this hybrid where I can have reconciliations, where some, but I can have digital uniqueness. In other words, we all agree that the record is recorded once. It could be really powerful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one one point I was discussing with our head of wealth a little earlier was in the UK we have this long distribution chain um, through all the participants. If we can move all of those participants on a common shared ledger, they'll be all be able to talk, sort of sing from the same hymn sheet, and again cut a lot of cost and hopefully bring a better service to. Customers.
0: Is there some value in transparency, you think, Nick? Because I think that you know, for purpose investing is one of the major themes at the moment. Do, can it make a difference to somebody if they can see where their underlying investments are actually held? Because now everybody's in sync, and rather than a wealth manager kind of going, "Oh, I think you've kind of got this mm-hmm. portfolio," that you actually know what your portfolio is.
4: So it goes actually even beyond that. Yeah. Uh, we found when we were putting back to the Scottish widow's story, there's a qu- blockchain. A piece to that story as well, um, but when we were putting it together, particularly our millennial women mm-hmm. who helped the build, were very interested in where money would be invested. To be fair, the age them, they haven't got any money. They're on the generation <laughs> rent camp. But they were also, if I had any, um, uh, then I would not just want to rely upon a fund manager managing my money. I'd be very interested in knowing where that money was being invested and what was also very interesting in whether it was doing good or not Mm -hmm. and would they, you know, uh, the end destination of that money and whether um, if it wasn't doing good and they maybe give up some potential return, they were prepared to do so um, Uh was a really interesting uh, insight that came from that. Um, The the other thing, just to the blockchain uh, point, I mean, it strikes me that if I was to try and describe it, I would say it's cut, cutting out the middleman, mm. And this is an interesting market that we exist in, isn't it? There's quite a lot of middle men and women um, all with our noses in the trough along a very long chain. Um, and it becomes an interesting, if we look out four or five years from now, how many noses in the trough will be removed mm-hmm. um, as a result of, of uh, blockchain. But when we were doing the Scottish Widows thing, we had two people who opted out of the pension scheme. Young people wow. opted out um and we got them on the vr experience at the end they both said that they're now going to join the pension scheme after three minutes which was interesting but i did ask them just out of interest have you actually saved any money anywhere and they said oh yeah yeah, yeah. we're into bitcoin <laughs> um and um uh and and they one of them mentioned blockchain mm-hmm. so we're talking about a 24 25 year old yeah. bitcoin and blockchain so we we're kind of going to need to get the program a bit here yeah. for the next um, Jen coming through.
0: Well, so Robinhood, um, fairly well known in the U.S., um, they added Bitcoin to their application, and it's a kind of a, it's not even just digital only. It's a mobile only kind of uh, platform. And when they added Bitcoin, they had a million people sign up in a day to try and get the application. I mean, <laughs> there's something about this legitimization of something that was seen as very scary before, but. Becky, how do you separate, like, the scary evil hacker money from what we can actually use?
3: You know, I think we, again, going back to, to my core focus is always around the customer. And so asking why, why do customers care about blockchain? And, and, and for me, it's we have this notion of in transparency we trust. And if you look at that settlement process or if you look at where, you know, your, your, your pension policy is held or where your investments are held or where your news story is coming from, you know, is it fake news? one of the things that we're seeing drive this customer need is this need for transparency, this need for being able to validate. And, and I think that's where we're seeing the practical application, not just in financial services, but also in, you know, in, in publishing, supply um, chain. And, supply chain. Uh, and so that's where we're really seeing people coming and trying to figure out what to do with blockchain. I think, I think what we still see, though, is the biggest hurdle to blockchain adoption is the fact that it, it's, it's hard to understand. Um, you know, it, it's, you, you can't, it's not like a server. You can't, like, look at it. It's not like a ledger.
2: You can't see it. It's, it's this distributed nature of it. It's not just um, hard to understand, but you also can't blockchain alone. <laughs> like, yeah. You've got to blockchain with friends. And, yeah. and I think that's quite hard for financial services to, to get on board with because they're like, well, who owns this and who governs it? And, yeah, that, and I, yeah I think that takes a mind, a mindset shift. In yeah. your
4: conversations, um, uh, Olivia, with financial services organisations, do, do, do you think there's a resistance to this to keep it very... Um, like a mystique because it doesn't (laughs) really suit them to start to create this degree of transparency it's a slightly controversial question but
2: Oh, no, I, m- my sense is that after 2008, everyone is so excited to have something cool in financial services to talk about <laughs> and that everybody has just drunk the fintech Kool-Aid, basically, because they're just happy to be doing something trendy as opposed to something evil. <laughs> yeah. um, so, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think banks and, and, and other financial services um, companies are, are really excited about blockchain, but they just haven't quite yet worked out how to get it over okay. the line. And so no. some of the most promising projects that are sort of coming into, into fruition are coming from existing utilities, things like Calistone or DTCC or the Australian Stock Exchange. So they're, they're coming from already sort of networked positions as opposed to just one guy Trying to pull it across themselves,
0: as Richard Crook from RBS often says, there's only so much fun you can have with your own blockchain. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you mentioned uh, a couple of examples, you know, Calisto ASX and DTCC, several other um, financial market infrastructure providers, and um, there's funds DLT that are pretty interesting. There's uh, there's a few others out there doing stuff in the alternatives, you know, private equity and, yeah. and and this sort of stuff. You know, really trying to take those alternative asset classes and give them the kind of uh, kind of straight through processing across organisations. Can you g- give any example maybe that's from the public domain of, of the difference that would make today versus tomorrow? Can, can you work through them perhaps?
2: Um, yeah, should, with alternatives specifically? Or oh, with just, with any, just, any asset class, just but, any, but
0: just I mean, just trying, you know, today's process, tomorrow's process, just to really make it real.
2: Sure. So, um, you know, the funds DLT is, is maybe an interesting example that you, you mentioned. And I think funds generally is, is an area where asset managers can be like authors of their own destiny in the sense that they're the issuers of the assets as opposed to the investors of the assets. So they can actually make the decision, right, we're going to issue some of the units of our funds onto a, a blockchain DLT kind of platform. And there are a few. So Callistone um, is obviously one of the big global networks. They've announced that they're going to move to a blockchain. Um, funds DLT in Luxembourg and then Isnes in France, all working on a, on a similar problem. And so instead, of, just, just to give an example of today's process, so say I, Olivia, want to buy units in um, the BlackRock Global Equity Fund. Um, that's that, The way that I do that is I give my money... That money gets taken from me via sort of a payment mechanism and then built into the system are transfer agents, custodians, CSDs. Um, It's just many, many fund accountants, you know, middle office records. It's it's really sort of this very complicated chain. And the idea with, with any kind of blockchain is that you can move everyone onto the same same platform and everybody can talk about the same thing so you're not sending all these messages and doing all these reconciliations so that should make it a cheaper but talking about just about cost reduction is probably quite boring but it should also make it much much quicker so right now if i want to buy a fund i think it's the only thing that you can buy in the world where you don't know what price it is until yeah. the next day and quite often it involves a fax and um you know these these are very very um sort of overnight processes um, and that's really frustrating for the asset managers as well because they want to know their flows on an intraday basis that so they can invest them and and get Absolutely. get the, the best outcomes. so should be quicker should be cheaper and everybody should um know what what's going on and
0: once you've got that basis maybe then you have the market transparency you need to not only show to your customers but actually to be able to do some of the stuff with ai that you always wanted to to be able to do. Um, I, I'm curious to, I want to follow up on Nick's point, because you made a point that, like, actually, do we really want this transparency? I, I heard an example, you know, so the um, the asset management industry has been under investigation by the FCA for um, not necessarily being the most competitive in the world. Mm. Um, you may, Some of you may have seen this report. And having a complex supply chain, uh, do we really want this transparency? Do we want um, fair prices? Or, or does it make sense that a pension fund doesn't know what they're getting when they buy it?
4: I, I, I think that a um, real positive um, outcome of transparency, but almost the blend of blockchain and AI. You know, the debate between passive and active fund management has gone on forever. Um, And, you know, one is, in theory, lower priced than the other. And, you know, I start to question how many human beings will be required in a tracking environment Mm -hmm. um, once you've got blockchain uh, and AI working together. So then you go into a world of, well, I'm going to pay more for active management, because I'll make you more money as a result of it. So first question is, well, will you? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's going to be more expensive, typically, for active management. I can see a scenario where upside could be shared between a client and a fund manager, and indeed the downside pain mm-hmm. uh, against a tracker could also be shared. And that's good for the customer, I would suggest, um, at the end user. Because you're aligning the interests of these two parties. And, and which I guess has, I wonder
0: course, if you're like holding back the tide of inevitability geez. by not doing yeah, that. Yeah. It, it's coming. You've just yeah. got to gotta get there. Yeah. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June and we're bringing FinTech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. Um, Becky, I, I want to gaze into the future a little bit. I want to make, uh, get your thoughts into uh, how do we, across all of these technologies, AR, VR, AI, blockchain, they're all buzzwordy, right? The, we started out with that as a thesis. Hopefully, we've shed some light on them and they're making a little bit more sense. Where do you start? If, you, if you're going back to your office tomorrow, you're feeling like absolutely engaged, I want to do this thing, what do I do?
3: So, for me, you always start with what is the unmet customer need. What is it that our customers want what is it that our customers need? what is it that wider society needs that we 're not providing and then the technology is just a way to do that
0: Nick, how about yourself where would you start
4: yeah um, let's go back to the original example um, uh, you 've got uh, that I was using earlier you 've got uh, Scottish widows um, and it 's questioning if you like it's it 's the brand resonance between its customer base and uh, the wife of a dead bloke um, and so um, Uh, how do you connect those so they've had that brand question how are we resonating with our customer base right through to actually a lot of their customers not even knowing that their pension or their investment funds were with the Scottish Widows Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a pretty tricky starting place so how do you, and I completely agree with you okay you start there, how do we solve that Problem, um, uh, and then you start to unpack what is the right tech solution, as opposed to here's a really nice pair of goggles, stick them on, and wow, it's all going to be amazing. Yeah. isn't really.
0: But uh, I think there's something nice though about showing people the future rather than telling them. Yeah. Like once I've sat inside an augmented reality of VR and I've seen my future self mm. like sitting alone by themselves drinking whiskey or whatever it's going to be, mm. um, with with a grey beard instead of a ginger <coughs> one, uh, then then I've kind of got a few. It, I've had an emotional mm. response, but internally people get a different feel
4: yeah we we asked we did a we asked two questions we did 43 people um cr- as i said across different asia different industries and we asked two questions at the end one how did you find this experience uh of three minutes and two what are you going to do now and that was it and then they got their marks and spencer's vouchers <laughs> on the way out and
0: that's what um, i have to do for an, yeah, one of those vouchers yes.
4: and uh, and uh 39 out of 43 people said they found it a really engaging and immersive experience because it made them look to the future.
0: How many would say that about getting their quarterly statement? <laughs>
4: yeah, exactly. And, and, they oft- and we filmed it all as well, and a lot of people talked about their quarterly statement. Um, and, they, and then but well, what was interesting, Sorry, four people said it was all right, a bit gimmicky, but it was all right. Um, here's an th- interesting thing. 43 people out of 43 said, I'm going to go and review my pension. Wow. 100% success rate in three minutes to engage somebody to think about their, their, um, uh, their futures and go and review uh, their pension. So um, it was completely blew us away, to be honest. Uh,
0: well, that, and you can see uh, the business case for that immediately. I mean, that's customer acquisition. That is a completely different way of engaging somebody with their pension and maybe buying new funds or maybe there are obvious upsides there. And, and Olivia, I kind of want to get your thoughts on on that raw business case of this stuff and the process you follow. Because you can't just throw money at uh, operationalizing this stuff. How do I learn? How do I go from, like, where I am today to, to kind of just trialing this with customers, because I think that 43 customers example is a really good one. Have you seen others like that?
2: I was going to ask, just before I answer that, d- ask, did did you follow up on whether or not they did anything? Yeah, because <laughs> you. If, you, if you have like a no, fun you, experience and then you come out and you're like, yeah, I'm definitely going to check my pension, but it's like whether you yeah. actually did. And so
4: it- it's a really good question. And um, uh, the answer is no. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, what we did find was they went through this experience and then what they wanted to do was go on and do something else. Now, to be fair, this was just a proof of concept, so there was no connectivity to enable them to do that, and that wasn't the, really the exam question. But the majority of them said, if I was now able to go and do something, because yeah. the problem they then had was, they walk out, go, wow, that was great, go back to their normal lives, um, uh, and or jump on a normal website that's one size fits nobody. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and then the, you lose that interaction. And so did they do anything about it? I don't know. But it was not beyond the leap of us in the audience to be able to go, well, we'll just connect them then through and carry on that journey from that emotional journey into some form of decision that they'd make.
2: Yeah. Because I, I think that's really interesting that you know the traditional sort of wealth modelers you see maybe people once a year or once every six months and what i like about some of this technology is that you can start to do more frequent mm-hmm. nudges and yeah. um, and you know not even any of these these technologies which which some of you might feel are quite out there but i love to be interacted with via whatsapp i use it for everything mm-hmm. i use it for work i use it so if i could have my wealth manager in my whatsapp that would be a very tiny step forward for me but it would make a big <laughs> a big difference so i i think Try to sort of, as you say, answer real sort of customer problems. What do they want? I think personalisation of of that service, because, you know, my mum would hate if if a wealth manager contacted her via WhatsApp. (laughs) So trying to sort of work out what your customer wants and what their style of interaction is. And then for my passion, which is much more on the ops and Mm -hmm. and tech side, I think, you know, the customer experience is one thing and it's important, but it, it can in some instances just be putting lipstick on a pig in a way like we've got so much mess in our sort of back shop Mm -hmm. that we we need to sort out as an industry and if we don't we we risk being disrupted by someone else who doesn't have that
0: the amount of times um i've gone into a large organization that's one of our clients at 11fs and they've gone we want to do this really cool thing and then we go to their it team and go uh your client wants to do this thing and they go yeah okay in about three years and for (laughs) 15 million we can think about it and actually it's that the legacy that does sometimes hold you back. And we shouldn't forget that sometimes taking the romance out of tech and really thinking about the basics is, is critical. Um, and you know, somebody WhatsApping me would be, would be kind of ideal. And there are tools now. There are basic yeah, tools are. where a business can securely interact via those chat channels. And I think... Um, you know, uh, and financial have proven that chat can and, and uh, Tencent have proved chat can be in a major way to engage with an entire generation and you
2: have a, a phrase that I've heard you use on the podcast which is innovation theatre mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is where innovation is funded from the marketing department or the distribution department it's not fundamental changes to and, and I think that that's you should avoid innovation theatre basically look for tangible things that you can really do
4: I was, I was just going to to add to your uh, lipstick Point that um, you know, uh, as we well know, when you try and put lipstick on a pig, it's um, uh, it's quite a hard thing to do, and um, uh, it, it doesn't look that good, and um, don't and the pig wipes. doesn't like it. Um, <laughs> and, um, and what I think will happen because legacy has held our industry back in many ways, I completely agree with you that this back end is like slowing down progress, and I think the investment will start to come of creating completely new platforms, and then going through that world of do we transition? But I think to try and fix the pig uh, thing is going to fix be- a the, bit Don't fix, fix the, the pig. pig. Have, yeah. <laughs> a, have, <laughs> a, have a pig like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: okay. And I think this is something we hear a lot at 11FS as well, is once you've asked that question of how can you do it, how, oh, well, it's going to cost 15 million and take three years, the question is, well, what does the customer actually need, and how much platform do I really need to support that? The, like, How much tech do I need? Do I need my entire ops division to have entirely new processes in order to support this for 100 customers? Probably not. And then, can I grow that thing that was for 100 customers into 1,000 customers? Great, so I have the pleasure of being joined by the one and only Eileen Burbage. Uh, Eileen, how are you?
5: Really good, thank you. Thanks I'm, for having me.
0: I'm so delighted to have you on our little show, FinTech Insiders. It means a lot to have you here. Um, we're at WealthTech 18 today, um, and I wanted to ask you uh, just a couple of questions, really. You've obviously been really key to the growth of FinTech, I think, in the UK, but also on the international stage. We've seen a couple of major trends in the last couple of years. I think we saw the rise of the Challenger Bank and then move into the SME sector. What do you think are the major trends at the moment, and where do you think sort of wealth sits within that?
5: Yeah, so, I mean, I think that what we've seen first of all, was a lot of consumer-facing transactions and services, so kind of what I describe as B2C, or sort of business consumer offerings. And I really always equate this to what happened with the original sort of dot-com boom in the first internet wave, right? Yeah. You had your Yahoo's, your Google's, your Amazon's, your eBay's, and then half a decade later, you have a company called Salesforce.com that's incorporated in a large enterprise company. So I think it is natural that we first saw within fintech consumer transactions and propositions come out. And then, as you point out, now we're getting into servicing SMEs and financial services institutions themselves. I think at the same time, the consumer proposition will continue to grow. And we started with payments and remittances and those types of um, activities where friction was coming out, customer-centric propositions were coming out, transparency was coming out. And now I think, yes, we're going to have advice. I think we're going to have financial management. Um, And wealth tech is an interesting one because I think wealth management, you know, I hate to be sort of um, the rubble for an event like today, but I I wonder if wealth will actually come out of that title for this subsector. Because I also think it's the other side of the coin of financial inclusion and offering services and advice for people who haven't previously had access to the great advice and the great resources that the financial services sectors delivers.
0: So it's almost um, a growth opportunity for that. Industry, then surely you can take all of those skills about how you really help somebody think about their portfolio and the the length of their life, but actually bring that level of service to a, a different kind of income bracket. Do you see that sort of happening a little bit?
5: Yeah, 100%. I think the addressable market is going to grow significantly because I think you know whether one could say that wealth management has been servicing the top 1% or half a percent or whatever, it's going to be clearly there's an excess of 98, 99% that's unserved, and I do think that expensive market question is, of course, about profit margins. But I think what's happening in this subsector is you see a lot of innovation and you see a lot of automation. And so you're seeing a lot of services being delivered sort of electronically, Mm -hmm. uh, digitally. And of course, we're here at this conference and BlackRock's done an amazing job with iShares as an example. But I think it's also starting to see that margin and profit and actually value-added service delivery is still really important to consumers and customers, and so I think the pendulum might shift back a little bit again towards the middle and and less automation where there will be personal relationship management. And I think that's really important for the less financially literate.
0: And it's interesting to me that you've almost got those um, those two forces in that I need uh, more of a personal relationship, but I also need to reduce cost. Can I do both at the same time or can I just do one? Because tech and technology had always been seen as just a cost center and how do I drive cost out of the business. But surely it can give you something in the personalization side.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I agree with you that technology has been seen as a cost sort of a reduction kind of uh, force. But I also genuinely believe in a lot of what I sort of talk about and also as an investor what I spend my time looking for is that tech can enable greater value added service delivery. and. Uh, the opportunity to sort of expand and improve one's product or you know proposition and i genuinely believe that we'll see more innovation in what is being offered to people that we haven't been able to do before
0: tech the enabler so um can you give me any thoughts for the sort of things you're looking for anything that you've seen out there any examples that you've seen as to you know kind of point the way for what we might see in the next two three years perhaps
5: Yeah, that's a really great question. If I knew the answer to that, I'm not sure I'd be here. I'd probably be sort of counting my pennies um, and looking at all my great investments because I had so much foresight. It's hard to know, um, obviously, what's going to happen. And I I think because I have the luxury of being a very early stage investor, uh, I look at business plans and I talk to people who are pitching us businesses that are just getting formed. And when that happens, actually, I... End up making a lot of decisions based on the people. Yes. So I can tell you what kinds of propositions we see a lot of. I think I would say uh, nine out of ten uh, propositions we see have AI and machine learning mm-hmm. in the in the in the title, even if it has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a lot relative to sort of blockchain, um, not as much anymore about cryptocurrency, more about blockchain and um, decentralized registers, for example. We see a lot to do with financial inclusion, which I think is great. Absolutely. We see a lot with reskilling, so not just in financial services, but across the board and how digital might impact that. But we're also seeing other subsectors come about, so insurance or insure tech, yes. um, reg tech, or you know things that can help with compliance, KYC, AML. So we're getting kind of the less and less sexy type of business, further and further away from the direct customer, but opportunities to really reduce cost. Bring greater efficiency, but also hopefully expand the services that are being offered from existing financial services companies.
0: Phenomenal foresight. Thank you so much for being on FinTech
5: Insider, I It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: I can see we're running up against it time. So Becky, I'm going to ask uh, you to tell the audience where people can find out more about you. <laughs>
3: uh, um, well, I'm I'm here. You can talk to me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <On a> Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, am I supposed to shout out to the podcast? Sorry, podcast people. Hopefully, you'll edit this bit out. Um, so, I work at Accenture. You can find me on LinkedIn and your friend Google. There aren't very many Rebecca Skileses out there, um, and only one of them works for Accenture. So, that's where you can find me.
0: Thank you very much. Um, Nick, how about yourself?
4: Yeah, Nick Burns are probably best on LinkedIn, although I'm a bit rubbish on keeping up to date with it. Um, so, uh, uh, And or go to engageworks.com, um, and then you'll be able to track me down through there and see some of the... Cool, cool stuff that yeah. they do.
0: <laughs> They're cool, is um,
4: <laughs> Olivia, uh, how about yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely the same. Uh, LinkedIn or, or Google. I think, like you, I'm, I'm the only one. Uh,
0: and if anybody does listen to podcasts and you want to hear this entire panel again, and your uh, <laughs> laughter in the background, then you can find us on iTunes, uh, FinTech Insiders. So just look for FinTech Insider on iTunes and maybe listen to it. Um, Alrighty. Um, I hope you'll give the audience, and uh, not the audience. Give yourselves, but our panel, our wonderful panel, a round of applause. (laughs) And if you're listening on the podcast, thank you very much for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Drop us a review on iTunes. We love reading reviews. That's all for this week. Thank you. Goodbye.